Well, we're almost there, less than three weeks to go, to know what path that we continue on. One of complete insanity, or one where at least if you are progressive, you know the fight will be tough, but at least you have a shot at making some inroads, especially on two of my favorite topics, higher taxes on the wealthy and corporations, and shoring up the Postal Service, which is what I'm going to talk about today. This is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you with us on our show for October 14th, 2020. Our major sponsor is the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect for its 200,000 members and retirees, as well as 2,000 private mail sector workers. And by the way, if you want to help us expand and get this show going and show it to lots of people, please go and sign up at our YouTube site so we can begin to distribute this to a lot more people in the video world. You can do that by going over to YouTube and looking for the Working Life Show with Jonathan Tassini and just sign up there, even if you keep listening to the program as an audio product. And of course, we'd love if you become a financial sponsor of the show. You can do that in two ways. You can go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab and find your way over to Patreon and there you can sign up as a sponsor, either on a one-time basis or a regular monthly basis. And as I usually say to you, you could also do that through ActBlue, because I know a lot of people are used to making political donations through ActBlue, and we've partnered up with ActBlue. So go over to ActBlue, look for the Working Life Network with Jonathan Tassini, and you can sign up there again on a one-time basis or on a regular monthly basis. I think everyone listening to this show knows by now that I place myself in the political space that sees the utter need to eviscerate and destroy Donald Trump and his minions on the one hand, and also understands quite clearly that hell, a monumental fight waits us on the other side of Election Day if a Biden administration takes office. I can't think of a better illustration of the fight to come that when it comes to taxes. In one corner, we have the pro-rich people, pro-corporate immoral Republicans who every time they have power, shovel more and more money to billionaires and CEOs. And they follow an ideology that, by the way, has been a shining symbol of the party no matter who is president, which is why I laugh at the so-called anti-Trump Republicans who pretend like they are any different when it comes right down to economic and foreign policy. They just aren't. But in the other corner, you find the Biden world, whose tax proposal to me crystallizes why we, progressives, have so much work to do. It's just meek. To be sure, it returns money back to the Treasury, to the people, to society. Some of the money that Republicans have essentially stolen and handed over to rich people and corporations in the 2017 tax scam bill. But it's way short of what should be done. Every time Joe Biden made such a big deal during the TV mud wrestling match when he was sparring with Trump that he wouldn't raise taxes for anyone making under $400,000 a year, I yelled back at the TV, why the hell not? Really? You won't ask people earning, say, $250,000 a year, a quarter of a million dollars to pay higher taxes? What the actual fuck? So let's get into that with one of my favorite guests, Matt Gardner. 
Matt is a senior fellow for the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, where he has been for over two decades. So here we are once again talking about our favorite topic, taxes. And I feel like there are three, if I can say, groups in this tax debate. There's the Trump GOP Republicans who are kind of, to me, off the reservation and have done huge damage on the in the tax area. And this goes back all the way to Reagan. You know this because you've looked at this endlessly. Their supply-side economics, tax cuts for the rich and corporations. That's one group. Then you've got the Biden world, and this is what led me to come and talk to you about this, your excellent paper, National and State-by-State State Estimates of Joe Biden's Revenue-Raising Proposals. And then you've got the little world that I'm in, the progressive world, that feels, frankly, and this is what I want to talk to you a little bit about and get some kind of feedback, feels frustrated by this discussion on taxes because you've got these nutcases, the Republicans, the GOP, the folks who have bankrupted the federal treasury every time they've been in power. And then you've got Joe Biden proposing things which to me are meek. And let me go through a few of these and you can push back and tell me, no, this is this is really good, a good start. The first thing, and he said this during the, I don't want to call it a debate, but the mud wrestling with Trump <laughs> in the first time, he was very, very adamant. You are only going to see your taxes raised if you make $400,000 a year or more. And I just am befuddled by this because if you're someone making $200,000 a year or $250,000 a year, that's a quarter of a million dollars. That seems to me to be somebody that's pretty well off and can afford to pay more taxes. And it makes a big deal. And now I'm looking at your excellent, as usual, your excellent charts that shows that if you looked at the average of income of 175,000 as opposed to 400,000, you really get a nice big swath of people, a bigger swath, 15% of the taxpaying world. And so my final point, and then just riff back on me on this, is that we have a lot to do in this country. And Biden is proposing a lot. And it, it's great that we can raise, through his proposal, a net and we don't have to get into this whole capital gains thing for a moment, but a net of about $209 billion into the Treasury annually. But why not more? Sure. Well, I'll start with a glass half full observation here, because that's the only one you're going to get, which <laughs> is that by comparison to what we've heard others propose in the past, certainly by comparison to what uh, Donald Trump just shoved down Congress's throat three years ago, what candidate Biden is proposing is clearly very progressive and would raise a substantial amount of money. I mean, it's, it's, it's a net win compared to the precarious fiscal situation we're in right now. So that's, that's a good thing. But yeah, um, it is problematic for a couple of reasons that he's choosing to draw this $400,000 line in the sand below which he will not impose direct tax hikes. Um, one reason, as you alluded to, is that there's, you know, at $400,000, you're really quite well off no matter where you live. You might spend it all, but you're still quite well off. Um, you, could you could put this bar at two hundred dollars or $250,000 and get a far bigger chunk of the electorate and still not be 
even threatening the livelihood, threatening the wallet in any way of anyone who could consider themselves middle class. So this is way too high a bar. The second reason is that when you draw a line in the sand in the tax code, and this is more of a technical argument, but I think an important one, anytime you draw these lines, it's really hard to police them. And if you insist on not crossing that line, I won't tax a dime of people earning under 400,000. You're adding a lot of complexity to the tax code. You're forcing lawmakers to enact a whole host of complicated provisions to enforce what amounts to a political posture, not a, a, a meaningless, not a meaningful policy goal. So it's it's way too, yeah, I, I think uh, meek isn't quite the word I would choose, but it, it's certainly not ambitious enough in the face of the fiscal challenges we, we, we're looking at right now. And it also is unnecessarily uh, strict. There's no reason to impose that kind of hard and fast rule, whether it's $400,000 or $200,000. What we need right now is flexibility. Certainly, we need to admit that revenue raising is a sensible goal, and Biden has done that in a way that Trump certainly hasn't in the last four years. So Biden's uh, idea that we can't impose direct taxes on people below 400000 is not at all ambitious from my perspective it would tie us into knots legally. And a third concern, I think, is just that when you make a promise this clear and this precise, and certainly this is as strict a line in the sand as we've seen on tax policies since read my lips, no new taxes. When these pledges are inevitably violated, when somewhere down the road, we end up hiking taxes in some way on people earning below $400,000, that's gonna be viewed by some as a betrayal. And right now we need less betrayal and more trust in our elected officials. So in all those ways, it just doesn't seem like a great idea to make this kind of a pledge, certainly not to pin that pledge to a number that describes less than 2% of Americans. And so one of the words you used in describing this is a political calculation or uh, the politics of it. And I know you weren't in the room when this was talked about in the Biden team, but it strikes me that this has got to be about politics. And even that's befuddling, because if you look at where Biden's strength, at least electorally, is now, it just defies imagination or defies logic perhaps not the imagination, but certainly defies logic to me that somehow he was going to alienate people at $250,000 a year. I'm just using that number because it's you know somewhere below the 400000 that he's going to alienate those people and therefore they're not going to vote for him and the Democrats because of those tax proposals, which perhaps if you lived in San Francisco or New York, $250,000 a year does not seem like a lot of money. But to your point, in 98% of the rest of America, that's a big hunk of change. It is. Uh, so it's it's pretty strange to me to think that this $400,000 line in the sand Biden has drawn could be the result of a sensible political calculation because so many Americans would view $400,000 as an utterly unattainable amount of money, as something way beyond what they have. Even $200,000 to most people is unattainable and unimaginable. And in these times would be seen as like incredible riches. 
And all I can think of in his defense is that we're coming from this sort of scorched earth supply side view of taxes that has been either dominant or uh, you know prominent for the last 40 years you know that since since president reagan came in and tried to take a crowbar to our or to our tax system uh, there's been this view of government as bad and taxes as the tool of something that is bad so if there's this basic distrust of taxes, there's obviously a basic distrust of raising them. And Republican leaders since Reagan have done their best to reinforce this view that tax increases are inherently wrong. And you're, coming, of and you're coming to my real final thought about this, and that is that the Democrats have never been able to successfully counter that with a clear idea that taxes are the dues that we pay in a responsible society to pave the roads and do all the things that we take for granted that need money. And in fact, they still hold on to those sort of pro-business supply side ideas in enough of a chunk of the caucus. For example, there are two dozen members of the House who have been endorsed recently by the Chamber of Commerce, uh, who I consider to be, from my point of view, the enemy of the people. And the reason that the chambers endorse them is because those folks presumably on taxes are far, quote unquote, better from the chambers standpoint. So this has been a uh, just an anchor and a weight on the party for a very long time and something that my progressive wing that I'm proud to be a part of has tried to fight tooth and nail. And I think, frankly, this is kind of foreshadowing the kind of fight we're going to have in a hope for Biden administration. I want to be clear. I am one of those progressives that believes our first task is to defeat Trump, eviscerate the Republican Party, and then have our debate with the Democratic Party. Now, related to that is a second part, which is Social Security. You know, there, and you're nodding because you know what I'm going to ask. He's only going to start to ask people to pay into Social Security above the cap. And let me just go back for a second. As you well know, and I'm really explaining this for my audience, right now there's a cap at 137700 um, Anybody currently who earns above that does not pay on the extra dollars that they're earning. Biden is saying, okay, well, let's get those people who are making over $400,000 a year to start paying into Social Security at the same ratio and level. But look at that huge donut that gap and goodness, especially politically, if you're trying to appeal as Biden is doing and apparently successfully to senior citizens, to older voters, why not say everybody should be included in that? Yeah, it's a perfectly sensible response to, to, to his views on the payroll tax side as well. And again, the, the best defense you can give of it is that uh, of this $400,000 donut hole is that uh, it's way better than what the other guy's proposing. Uh, But yeah, but the concern, you know, with uh, whether it's the uh, Social Security side or the general budget side, uh, we're awash in red ink. Uh, Recent developments have understandably put us even further in the red. We don't need to balance anything right now. What we need to do right now, obviously, is to make sure that the 30 to 40 percent of us who are having trouble making ends meet right now that, that we can. 
But at some point soon, we're gonna need to restore balance in our tax system. We're gonna need to get to the point where we're raising enough money to pay for the things we're providing. We haven't done it in the 21st century, and that's since I think the last uh, Clinton budget. Um, and there's a very real concern, and I think a sound one, that if you draw this line in the sand, either in the payroll tax or on the personal side at $400,000, we just can't get there. We cannot get to a point where we're gonna have a tax system and a spending side that are imbalanced with each other. Doesn't have to be the case, but when you make this vow, and I, and I use that word meaningfully, I think this is at this point a vow, um, you're really foreclosing the possibility of asking questions about how deep you need to go into the upper, upper, upper middle class to make things balanced. I think that's a real mistake. Yeah, right. Let's say he comes into the office and they look around, they say, hey, we want to do infrastructure. We potentially want to expand Social Security. We want to do more in expanding the Affordable Care Act. I believe in single payer, but let's put that aside. And they want to do a whole list of things. And they say we're still short a bunch of money because of the economic situation. Why not then have a tax proposal that goes down to 200000 dollars a year. But then to your point, you then have the blowback of right away people saying, ah, oh, you see, you're violating your campaign promise. Yeah. And when it's that firm, like, you know, a dollar of tax increase on somebody earning at 395,000, the idea that that's going to be a violation of a, uh, of a fiscal pledge, it's just a terrible place to put yourself into. Um, I think um, you know you you raise a good point about the reason we raise the the reason we levy taxes in the first place, and and I think um, this is really important. If you think about it from compared to the supply side view, where taxes are inherently bad, any proposal to hike taxes is by comparison a good thing. But the framework here is really we're not taxing you, we're taxing really really wealthy you are going to be fine and that doesn't get at all to this issue you raise of why we levy taxes and the importance of us contributing to pay for the services that we all want and demand from the federal government we need to get to a place where we recognize that fiscal policy is a coin that has two sides taxes we pay in spending we get back and as long as we continue to say, well, okay, it's, we need to raise taxes on somebody, but I promise it won't be you. We're not getting to that fundamental problem at all. We need to get to a place where people are okay with paying taxes. Part of this, I think, is recognizing, as I say, that the fiscal policy coin has these two sides, the interconnectedness of spending and revenue. But part of it, and maybe a more immediately attainable part of it, is just getting the American public to believe that government and the tax system aren't biased against them. Yeah. And there are some pretty straightforward strategies for doing this. Uh, you know, the whole saga of Trump's tax avoidance or tax evasion, we don't yet know, uh, is reinforcing people's view that the tax system just isn't built for them. We need to get to a place where there aren't these prominent examples of rich people and corporations getting away with it. That's going to be a necessary precursor to get into a place where we can talk 
in an organic and positive way about the need for tax revenues. We need to enforce the tax laws we've had and make sure that the rules apply to the best off. I think, and, that, and the good news here is that I think we can do this, certainly we can do this without enacting tax hikes at all. Simply enforce the laws we have on the books. It's not gonna be enough to balance things, but it's going to be, I think, the platform on which a more organic and healthy discussion of the need for tax revenues can be built. And when that happens, I think we'll get beyond this whole $400,000 floor thing. I will get to a point where we don't impose limits on anything. We don't take anything off the table. We have an organic discussion of how much we need to raise and where it's going to come from. And I'll take your line of thinking just one step further and say it in a slightly different way, looking at it from the taxpayer at $50,000, is that, in fact, Biden and the Democrats hurt themselves among those folks who, when they hear there are going to be tax hikes, they don't hear above $400,000. What they hear, they're coming from my wallet. And you know, because you're an expert at this, that when we don't tax those people at the higher levels enough, especially what we're talking about now, $200,000 a year, $300,000 a year, the person at the lower end at fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 is carrying a heavier burden than he or she should. And we might not see it. We certainly, you know, we might not be even slightly aware of the direct linkage, yep. but we know that for decades, this gradual shift away from taxing the best off from taxing profitable corporations has trickled down, has trickled down to higher state and local taxes, has trickled down to higher federal taxes on middle income and lower income families, more user fees, all the little thousand cuts that we feel in our interactions with state and local government every day, all of which are more regressive, falling heavily on low income families. This is an indirect long-term consequence of not adequately taxing the best off of not adequately taxing big corporations. So yeah, there's a direct linkage there. And the more we reinforce fair taxation at the top, the more the rest of us won't face these thousand cuts from the regressive user fees. And the more the rest of us will feel confident that our system is understandable and, and that it's fair. Which is why I'm quite disappointed in the, as I called it, the meekness of the Biden proposal. Last uh, area I want to talk to you in the last few minutes is the part that was really fascinating when you talked about the direct versus indirect tax increases. And you were look at the, looking at the impact of increasing the corporate rate to 28 percent and limiting the offshore breaks, which is you and I have discussed over many shows, the tax breaks, the offshore tax breaks are just crazy. And I say to my audience, if you want to go back to our archive and listen to some of the conversations Matt and I have had about this topic. It's really illuminating. But the sentence that caught my attention was, I'm going to read from it, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which I know you folks use as kind of a touchstone, assumes that working people eventually bear a quarter of the impact of our corporate tax hike, and then in parentheses, in the form of a wage reduction, but also assumes that it takes several years for this to happen. Now, Am I right to say, and curious what you think, that that's not like some economic theory that's like the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. It's a result of corporate power, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be that wage increases are then cut. 
there's there's wage reductions because corporations are getting less money. That's because CEOs want to keep their pay packages. They want to take it out of the workers and because of the weakness of unions. So that in and of itself, I just want to be clear, that's not a stark economic thing. That's also about the politics and power. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely right. And it's a prediction and a prediction that is far from proven. I think the thing that um, the rebuttable presumption with corporate tax changes, with business tax changes in general, is that these taxes are falling on the owners of the business, the owners of capital, the, the shareholders who tend to be the best off Americans. There's always the possibility that to some extent these tax changes are going to be passed through to consumers in the form of higher prices, or as you mentioned, to wage earners in the form of lower wages. Uh, it's generally thought that those latter two things are a vanishingly small share of the overall impact. Mm -hmm. By and large, these are taxes on capital. Um, but still, in an era of lower wages, any kind of pushing it on workers uh, is just another hammer that's you know, hitting people. It'd be one thing if over the last 20 years, and you know these facts, if wages have been going up along with productivity and workers were seeing the benefit of their of their work, but that hasn't been true. So it's it's really evil, if I can use that term, for that to be the result of corporate uh, corporations having higher taxes on the corporate shell, especially in the case where these CEOs are making tens of millions of dollars, especially in pension and retirement benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Now, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a fair point that um, there's an element, it's pretty discretionary how companies react. Uh, obviously, they're constrained by, by supply and demand for, for wages, but they do have some discretion in passing these things through. But yeah, it would be pretty reprehensible if the same companies that have been you know, lavishing their executives with big bonuses and then laying off workers during the pandemic reacted to a, a corporate tax increase in the same way. I think it's pretty likely. I think by and large, the most predictable outcome is that it's going to get passed through to shareholders. Either way, though, this is an important point. Either way, uh, our analysis shows that the tax increases on business that candidate Biden has proposed aren't going to be that big on middle and low income families. In fact, are likely to be zeroed out by the tax cuts that candidate Biden has proposed. This is a third element of what Biden has proposed. There's the direct tax increases on folks over 400,000, the indirect business tax increases, and then recognizing the importance of the moment, uh, Biden has also proposed a very substantial increase in the child tax credit for families with kids, uh, low and middle income families, that would pretty much be a wash with any of this indirect business tax uh, hike. That's an important third finding uh, of a report. Uh, so the, for the last wrap up question, I assume obviously that none of this gets passed in its current form if the Senate is still in the hands of the Republicans. So that's going to be a factor. Biden can say whatever he wants, but clearly, if there's not a Democratic uh, control over both houses of Congress as well as the presidency, from your perspective, having seen how this all plays out, none of this is going to happen yeah, in its current right. form. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and it's 
probably not going to happen this way, even if there's a democratic sweep of everything, yeah. uh, both because, um, you know, we're still dealing with some supply side issues and because of the sheer difficulty of administrative difficulty of enforcing this $400,000 cap. But, um, you know, if you go back four years ago, Donald Trump as a candidate, you know, he was writing his tax plan on a cocktail napkin at this point of the campaign, but he still did make some fairly precise promises about getting the corporate income tax rate down to 15%, which turned out to be completely unattainable. Everyone, including the, you know, the least sensible Republicans pushing tax cuts, agreed that they just couldn't get there. So, you know, these promises always run into the brick wall of reality. I think that will certainly be the case with the really Byzantine details of Biden's $400,000 pledge. But, you know, for better or for worse, it's a promise, it's a platform, and it states pretty clearly the candidate's intention to not increase taxes on low and middle income families, and his intention, a pretty clearly stated one, to make the best off Americans, the ones who have gotten big tax breaks in the last three years, pay some of that money back. And I think that's the, that's the helpful frame within, within which to look at this. It's a very clear signal about who should be paying more and who shouldn't be paying more. Well, as usual, Matt, thank you very much for illuminating this topic for my audience. And probably we'll wait till after Election Day to see how all this pans out. But uh, after that, we'll have you back on the show again to look at what actually is going to happen with these tax proposals as they start getting written up and presented uh, to Congress and to the people. Thanks again for being on the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Obviously, the complete and utter collapse of the economy has hurt millions of people who lost their jobs and then to top it off, have had to sit around and watch Congress fiddle away time and do absolutely nothing to get people the kind of relief they need. Yeah, sure. Let's put the Republicans' heads on the chopping block for that. But also Democrats have been too weak in their proposals. As I've said here many times, the only way to support the people is to nationalize all payrolls until the crisis is over. Pay everyone full salaries up to $90,000 a year to get folks through the worst collapse in a century and let them stay at home, safe, healthy, and away from the virus. It's the only way to stop the virus. But even Democrats are not proposing that. Now, a whole lot of other important stuff has also been tossed by the wayside, including the $25 billion to shore up the United States Postal Service. Now, way before the pandemic, I've talked in this show about saving the post office, giving it not only a financial boost, but expanding what it can do. I mean, post offices are everywhere, often literally on main streets in towns all across the country. Everyone knows where their post office is. And postal workers have high levels of confidence among people and a long history of being an anchor and a symbol of Americana. After all, who was the first postmaster general? Benjamin Franklin. So why not turn post offices, for example, into hubs of financial transactions for people? From paycheck cashing, which could be a first step, and then on to remittances of money to families around the globe, and even installing postal service ATMs. You can boil down this to a simple question. 
Who would you rather give your business to? Citibank or JP Morgan or the post office? And in today's COVID world, what better place to have people come for an eventual vaccination than the parking lot of a post office? You've got thousands of locations already in place. You wouldn't need much but a few pieces of furniture, maybe a computer to log people in, using, of course, the Wi-Fi in the post office. So let's kind of remind people about the greatness of the Postal Service and what it could actually do by asking some questions of Max Sawicki. Max is an economist with the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and he recently wrote a paper, The U.S. Postal Service is a National Asset, Don't Trash It. Now, we've been really lucky over the past year or two, Max, to have on our show the president of the American Postal Workers Union, Mark Dimenstein, who I'm sure you know. And he's really articulated quite well the crisis for his members and the crisis in the Postal Service. I thought that your paper was quite important in many ways. It's called The Postal Service is a National Asset, Don't Trash It. I thought we would focus in a proactive way, a positive way, on the things that you outline how the Postal Service can actually expand and do a whole lot more. We all know in reading our materials and looking at the media that there's some financial crisis at the Postal Service, but there's so much the Postal Service can do. And so I wanted us to kind of think big and start, for example, where you point out that the Postal Service could partner up with state and local governments to essentially provide services. So in a minute or two, what would those be? Well, uh, especially now, I would say there are two basic uh, things involved. One is public benefits that people could be eligible for, but don't take up. And from data that's already long understood, uh, there's a significant shortfall between what are called take-up rates, which is the extent to which eligible people apply for and receive benefits and the number of eligibles there are in the first place. So, uh, I mean, the service right now has over 30,000 local facilities that people could go to where they could meet someone who could guide them, not just to state and local benefits, but to federal benefits. And especially in the teeth of this virus, with the need for uh, more of the aid to the unemployed that we've seen some of, but which we hopefully will see more of, uh, there could be a, an enhanced role for the service in expanding in that way. Basically, I mean, a lot of uh, people brought to the word socialism by Bernie Sanders think as Bernie does as a kind of expanded or built out welfare state, which is fine. I'm, I'm all for that too. And I don't dispute that it's kind of the immediate priority. The point about this paper was to try to expand that vision to put more emphasis on the potential for social ownership. Okay, so Max, let's get it, let's use a couple of examples. And again, I wanna get very concrete and less academic about this. What could the post office do in terms of those services? You kind of, I think, referenced the current aid. So that would be you could come to a postal spot and there are roughly, as you point out, 36,000 postal offices all across the country and get your check, right, for unemployment, for all sorts of things. 
Well, you could not only get a check, but you could be guided to benefits you might not have known about. And there's a significant uh, amount of that, as I said. Hmm. People may either not know about them or may be a little shy about applying out of some uh, perceived stigma mm-hmm. benefit. Mm-hmm. I noticed actually that when there was a new benefit offered at the state level here in Oregon, that there were these huge lines literally the next morning going around the block in front of bank uh, offices because that's where folks were directed to go and fill out the forms and apply for uh, the extra benefit. You could do that at your postal spot and people know where their postal spots are and folks are much more used to it. Those servicing customers, meaning the postal workers, they'd be much more used to processing that kind of information. Well, yes, there's a broader potential there too, which is a return to postal banking. Mm. I mean, there's a serious shortfall. Uh, In my paper, I cited a, a report from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation of what's called the unbanked. Yep. Uh, people who would benefit from immediate access to free and very basic banking services and who wouldn't have to go to uh, rip off uh, payday uh, lenders, payday payday lending and uh, title lending and uh, things like that. People, there's a lot of people that could really benefit from having a basic uh, bank account through which, uh, federal and state benefits could much more easily be transmitted. People wouldn't necessarily even have to show up at the post office, but the post office could administer the pipeline for those benefits. And I know that the postal banking idea has been around for a long time. Bernie Sanders has promoted it. I think it's on people's agenda. So especially for folks who don't have bank accounts, I assume also folks who are undocumented uh, folks who actually need access to money, if they need to transfer money, get benefits, the postal service would be a great place. A, a, a postal spot, a postal office is, as we said before, in every, every nook and cranny of the country, in rural spots, in uh, urban areas, and especially in places where banks are not interested in servicing people because it's not worth it to them. They're not making a big enough profit. So they would shut down branches and basically lots of, especially rural areas, don't have those kinds of bank outlets. I'm going to put aside for a moment the ripoff charges that banks charge just for a moment. But just in terms of access, it would certainly help rural areas. And if I can use the term more conservative red areas. Well, definitely the, I mean, these areas already benefit from the in, implied subsidy from uh, universal service. Mm-hmm. And uh, by extending other services to these areas, we're basically doing something similar, which is supporting uh, the economies in relatively isolated or thinly populated areas by providing services that the uh, that the private sector simply cannot provide on an economic basis. And over the centuries in the U.S., this practice, which has gone on since uh, revolutionary times, uh, has proved to be a spur to economic development. There's an upfront cost, but over the longer term, it it benefits uh, economic growth uh, in the broadest sense. Uh, these installations need not be limited to 
a virtual presence. They could be online. I mean, the Postal Service could provide a lot of this online, and and the local facilities could provide cleanup and adjustments as needed. But uh, now I'm curious, as I kind of telegraphed, having postal spots and the Postal Service replace banks, especially when we're talking about postal banking, it seems to me obvious that banks charge all sorts of outrageous fees, especially for those who have lower balances. If you have a very high balance, they tend to waive lots of checking fees. Have you done the computation or is it just simply obvious that if you if the Postal Service did this, that it would be a lot cheaper for people and they wouldn't be having to pay those kinds of high fees for basic banking services? Well, yes, broadly speaking, the, the service benefits from economies of scale, which means uh, the, the bigger you are, the more people you're serving, the cheaper it is to add one extra person to be served. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm confident that this would also apply in the vein of financial services. But I think the broader point here is that it doesn't necessarily have to pay for itself user-user, uh, user, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, in the broadest sense, the expansion of this, uh, I think, has been shown historically to be good for eco economic development and well-being in the longer term. So I wouldn't apply a profit or a cost uh, savings test to any incremental expansion of the service. I think that the point about uh, benefiting from expansion is uh, you accept possible short-term and incremental uh, costs for the sake of a longer-term uh, expansion. Yeah, I get that. I just think that some people ask that question in their minds, and I think it's worth basically answering it and saying this is easily answerable, it's easily done, and it, it makes total sense. And I get in the macro sense there, there's economies of scale. Now, one thing that you pointed out also, which I think is very much on people's minds right now, since the government has completely bungled the response to the coronavirus, and there's already talk about, okay, there's going to be a vaccine coming at some point. Yoo-hoo! You know, we're going to have uh, salvation. But then you think you take the next step and you say, if they bungled all the contract tracing and the testing prior to the vaccine... What gives anyone confidence that when they roll out a vaccine, they could actually do it in a coherent way and reach enough people? And you point out in the paper, I think correctly, that, my goodness, you could give this to the Postal Service to do. Yes, you could. Uh, I mean, these facilities we talked about, 30-something thousand, could be could dispense a vaccine. Now, I'd be very uh, apprehensive about a Trump vaccine and there was a story right. very recently about one of the principals involved working for the administration developing vaccines also has an ownership stake <laughs> in one of the companies. So but let's say the vaccine comes about. next. Let's say the vaccine comes next year and there's a new administration. There's still a challenge in yes. distributing. I'm not saying a new administration would bungle it in the same way that the Trump administration did. But the point is, if you're sitting there as a quote-unquote general, a field general on the vaccine distribution, and you're looking at the map of the U.S., 
you look and you say, my goodness, these are the spots to do it, especially because most postal outlets have outside facilities. They have a pavement, they have a drive, some have park parking lots. So you could actually set up those centers yeah. quite easily. They have a lot of real estate. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot that could be exploited with that, not just uh, vaccines in a pandemic, which of course is vital. Uh, I mean, the service could be delivering, if we ever get self-testing kits that are quick and easy, uh, the service could be delivering those. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's another, uh, certainly it's something that could be enlisted uh, uh, once we get a, a government that isn't off its rocker and, <laughs> and distribute a reliable vaccine. And the last part, which I think is on people's minds a lot, especially on the part of parents who have all their kids at home now, schools are closed, and especially for people who are working class, don't have the same kind of resources that richer people do in terms of access to the internet, uh, having broadband, If especially people of color, you look in certain communities, the access to broadband is much more suppressed. You could actually expand the role of the Postal Service in providing broadband and take it out of the hands of the awful monopolies, uh, the big cable companies who rip us off. Yeah, well, that was, I think that's the other obvious immediate candidate for expansion of actual public sector ownership and administration, mainly uh, to, to get really universal broadband. I mean, you look at the United States and you look at a country like South Korea, why can't we have broadband as good as they have? I mean, the speeds are, there's no comparison. Mm. And of course, the the egregious uh, uh, holes in terms of coverage. I mean, let me, if I could go back to the, the vaccine thing for a second, another important potential role for the service uh, is in the realm of uh, identification. Hmm. And if we're gonna do serious contact tracing, then providing universal, reliable, secure IDs to everyone, regardless of immigration status would be uh, very important in, in that vein. It, we have to make sure that it had the same kind of security, say the census does, which it wouldn't be vulnerable to abuse by law enforcement or something worse than that. But uh, potentially the service could be administering IDs. It, it does that in a very limited way now with passports. Mm. And uh, again, that would be dovetail with the needs of people that can't get uh, a simple bank account and other kinds of services because of uh, fuzzy identification issues. Well, Max, thanks very much for, for doing this research and doing this really important paper. We're big advocates here on this show of the Postal Service and all the tens of thousands of working men and women who work for the Postal Service. And principally, it's really a working class service. It is really for the people. And so we're going to be following this. We'll be big advocates for it. We'll have you back on the show to update us. Anytime. That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks to my guests, Matt Gardner and Max Sawicki. Our editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Our major sponsor is the American Postal Workers Union. Please do go over and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Once you subscribe, our audience grows. That helps spread the show. 
in the video world and gets our information to people who I don't think are going to get this kind of information, the ideas that we have in any place else. You can also become a sponsor of the show. You can do that in two ways. You can go over to workinglife.org, click on that podcast tab and find your way over to Patreon where you can become a sponsor either on a one-time basis or a monthly basis, or if you're more comfortable, do that at ActBlue. We've partnered up with ActBlue and you can go over to ActBlue and look for Working Life and there you can become a sponsor either on a one-time basis or a monthly basis. Hey, stay safe out there. Look forward to having you back next week.